Today's program was brought to you by 100 Bogart Street, the brand new co-working space in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Learn more at 100bogart.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners, tuning in from 65 countries around the world, about a million strong a month, listening to Tech Bites, the weekly show where we talk to influencers and innovators in the food tech space. And I'm very excited about today's show, and I say that almost every show, but this one has been many, many months in the making, trying to coordinate people's schedules and availability to get everybody together so we can have a live conversation inside the Heritage Radio Network studio, which is actually a repurposed shipping container that's in the backyard of Roberta's Pizza in Brooklyn. I'm Jennifer Leutze, your host, and today we will be talking with Andrew Carter, who is the CEO and co-founder of a company called Smallhold. They are a Brooklyn startup. They do indoor mini farms. Andrew, thank you for coming. It's been months in the making. I know. I'm excited to be here. Almost as long as it takes to grow some mushrooms. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> it, took us a, it took us a while to grow the show. <laughs> and joining him is Angela Dimiuga, who is a chef and collaborated with Andrew on a mini indoor farm at Mission Chinese Food. Hi. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. You have a... She, well, you can't see her because it's radio, but she has a very... Um, egg yolky orange sweatshirt on that looks very sunshiny in the in the darkness of the studio so that's nice that's a nice radiating. ambient radiating sunshine <laughs> also joining us today standing in for the part of david tattashore is vitor our engineer hello how are you good it's how nice to see you nice to see you too I'm glad I made it here I had to get on and off the l train a few times to complete my journey I'm getting more and more stressed about the L train shutdown, but we'll talk about that more next year, maybe. So this is episode 119. Today is Thursday, November 9th, 2017, in case you're listening in the future, which I know many of you do. We are going to start this show like we start every episode of Tech Bytes, going around the shipping container and talking about apps. Apps we love, old favorites that have maybe been living on your home screen for 10 years, new ones you've just discovered. Angela, do you have an app that you really love right now? I recently got back into a classic, Shazam, which is oh, Shazam is a good one. Yeah, so, you know, I'll go home, um, listen to, like, weird radio on in my mom's car or something like that. So you're listening to actual radio in actual a car, radio. like antenna radio, not antenna satellite radio. internet radio. Yeah, the last time I used it, which was very useful, is I was in the car with my mom, and we were both singing the song, and... We didn't exactly know the lyrics either. And so I, I put the Shazam on, and we both got to discover the song. And then we were thrift store shopping, and they play funny music at these suburban thrift stores. So I got a lot of really weird, good, old music. Bad, good music mm -hmm. with the help of Shazam. 
Excellent. Shazam is an oldie but a goodie. Sometimes it's the simple things that tend to endure. You know, a lot of the old original apps kind of did one thing. You know, yeah. They tell you the weather. They tell you what the song is. And that's really it. And that sometimes is better than all these other things that are... I thought about it because a friend... Yeah, a friend sent me um, a new... Like what she called an, a newer version of Shazam for clothing where you could... I could... I haven't downloaded it yet, but I'm very curious. I could take a picture of you in a sweater and find out what that sweater might be. A little freaky. That's very crazy. <laughs> That's very crazy. That takes the whole shop to look to a new level. Yeah. Okay, so Shazam for clothes. And I don't know what this is. Is it actually like. Shazam doing another version, or is it an app that is being billed as the Build Shazam as. of clothes? And, and sent to me as such. This is the Shazam for clothes. Okay. I don't know what it's called. We'll look for it. Yeah. We'll look for it. <laughs> Andrew, do you have an app that you like r- right now? Shazam is, I, has come into my life recently as well. It's really yeah. strange because I, <laughs> I actually didn't have it for a while and then I brought it back. But besides that... Audio like, is where it's at. I, I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I'm a pretty uh, classic sort of iPhone user. I, I went through a purge and sort of deleted everything I possibly could. So I'm kind of basic with the Instagram and Gmail kind of thing. Um, so I, so I, I, don't have, I don't have a ton more besides... Um, you know, those, those kind of apps. So, okay. Sorry about that. That's okay. You know, I, um, I download and delete apps all the time. I like to just have one home screen. Yeah. I don't like to have multiple ones. So I download things and then I delete them off my phone when I don't need them anymore. Things like airplane apps or, you know, language apps or things for traveling or things for projects or even, you know, things for the show where I download a bunch of things to check them out and, you know, see how they work. And if I like them, and, um, you know, when I'm done, I delete, delete, delete. Um, Vitor, do you have an app for us today? Yeah, I actually just found out about this app uh, called Round Trip. Uh, Round Trip. Yeah, uh, the logo is a little RT. Uh, it's the, it does uh, fare calculations oh. uh, for the subway here in New York. Cool. Interesting. So uh, apparently, uh, well, I'm sure... Everybody has run into this problem of just having some money left and it never evens out mm. to zero. <laughs> oh, on your me- on your Metro card. Right. right you have like source. 17 cents, $1.19. Right. And then eventually your card expires and you kind of lose those cents, but they do add up. And I think that's how the MTA <laughs> makes some extra uh, extra money. money. Yeah. They used to put the money onto a new card before a long, long time ago. Yeah. So this one you can calculate, uh, it does the bonus, it does everything, so it evens out to a certain number of trips. And it also has other cool things like a trip log that you can kind of keep track of how much you're spending. And it compares it to how much you'd spend with the monthly pass to see if it's worth it or not. Has it been helpful for you in terms of figuring out how to best purchase your metro fares? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've started biking a lot more recently and trying to save on uh, uh, subway, but that alone, just not paying, you know, the weekly or the monthly pass and calculating that really helps. Yeah, I try and do a mental calculation when I run out of subway fare on my card and try and figure out, do I need the weekly? Do I need, if I take at least 10, 10 trips is how I figure it out usually, but that might not be right. Well, I will go on to, uh, I will continue on Vitor's subway uh, 
app. And I will go to actually the first app that I called out when we first started doing the app segments. It was show number four back in 2015. And the first app I ever called out, which I didn't use today, and I should have because it would have saved me some heartache. There is an app called Is the L Train F'd? <laughs> and it's very, very simple. It has, it puts the L Train logo onto your phone. You open it up and it says, is the L Train F'd? And there's a gray circle and it either says, <laughs> yep, which it says right now. <laughs> Or it says, nope, if any, everything's running fine. And that's all it does. You want to talk about the old school apps that only do one thing? This does one thing. And I should have looked at it, and I used to look at it religiously every morning before I came out to Bushwick to do the show to see. And I didn't today, and I should have. So is the L train aft? Yep, it is. Get the app. <laughs> Find an alternate route. So... I'm glad that everybody made it out to the shipping container. Andrew and I have been talking about doing this show for quite some time. Mm. And indoor farming, farming, tech, hydroponic, aquaponic, all those kinds of things are, are very hot topics in the food tech space. There are actually some big headlines recently that Arrow Farms, which is an indoor farming group in New Jersey, just took in a huge amount of investment um, inclusive of, I think, Dave Chang threw, in some, threw some money into the hat for that also. Yep. So it's definitely in the news. It's definitely something people talk about as we look to feeding the planet and you know what to do is natural resources become uh, less and less available and less and less reliable. Um, farming indoors is something that people are very interested in. The thing that attracted my attention about small hold is they have what they call mini farm technology. And for lack of a better way to explain it, it, it's almost like if you imagined almost a large vending machine is almost what it looks like. And it has um, windows inside and you see the plants growing and it, they're completely self-contained and climate controlled inside with you know water and lights and all that. And you can kind of stand there and watch your produce growing on a, on a small scale, which is fascinating to me. Thank you. You could actually have them in vending machine areas at some point. Potentially, yeah. I mean, that's that's where we want to be. We want to be having the freshest produce for everyone, essentially. So the other thing that makes Smallhold interesting is that they actually did a very practical application of this and installed one of the mini farms in Mission Chinese Food in New York City um, downtown and were growing actual food for the restaurant, which takes the farm-to-table thing to a completely another level when the farm is actually inside the restaurant and next to the table. So let's go through sort of just a little bit. I mean, starting off with Andrew talking to you, indoor farming is obviously just a big, a big, big storyline. What makes the mini farm idea different from just the general trend of, you know, aquaponics and hydro farming and indoor farming? Sure. Uh, so I my background's actually in that world in greenhouse production, and when um, a few years ago started started brainstorming about um, what the real issues are with food production, and I don't necessarily think it's the technology, it's the method, it's more distribution. Uh, the reason that we are building these farms inside cities or outside of cities are because. We're shipping produce all around the world. It's losing quality. We're losing. We're literally throwing stuff away along the way. 
Um, and we just were trying to figure out a better way. Uh, and so what we, what we did was create these essentially growth chambers we can install on site uh, and pre-grow the produce off site and distribute it into the system. And so, for example, the Mission Chinese unit uh, receives pre-grown mushrooms uh, that's grown three-fourths of the way, and then it just is it, it's left for the final stage of growth on site. Um, this means that we can keep the price down, we can keep the labor really low, uh, and we can essentially distribute our footprint among our customers. And we call that distributed farming, which is a pretty, pretty new thing. So I want to just go back a couple steps at the very beginning when you were talking about the work that you were doing. All of these fancy sci-fi terms like aquaponic and hydroponic, they're really just modern terms for the good old-fashioned greenhouse in many ways, right? Sometimes. I mean, all of these methods have been going on for quite some time. Um, hydroponics, uh, you know, People think people were doing that in, in ancient Egypt, essentially. Um, aquaponics, uh, aeroponics even. A lot of that uh, research was going on in the 70s and 80s. Um, and uh, the, the methods only recently started becoming feasible to do on a commercial level, uh, mainly because of advancements in lighting technology, um, but also just in mechanization and automation. Uh, and there's just way more of a market for local produce. Uh, that's just really becoming a huge thing now. Um, I think that uh, a lot of the methods that people are using, yeah, is, is used in commercial farming. Uh, it's just kind of adapted to be in this, this urban agriculture and this, uh, this uh, new age of, of farming. So the new age of farming is, is being driven then by some advances in technology, but mostly a consumer demand for things that are more grown more locally because they're perceived as better better produce, better product, better for the environment because you don't have that transport footprint of yeah, yeah, yeah. fuel and all those kinds of things. Yeah, I think that um, I think that a lot of this a lot of this work um, that people are doing is are, are for specific markets. Like I don't think it's safe to say that a vertical farm is going to feed the world. Um, it's that, not going to feed the world when we're all living in the <coughs> underground shopping mall. Maybe if we're living in the underground <laughs> shopping mall. Um, but there needs to be advances in all sorts of agriculture. We're not going to grow corn in one of these things. Um, so with precision irrigation and precision agriculture with drones and all these, these really cool sensors that are coming out, um, that's a whole sort of separate sector that, that is having its own advancements and its own sort of technology uh, advancements right now. So those are also interesting points of delineation that there are specific types of indoor farming and farm technology for specific types of crops. It's not sort of a one size fits all. Once you can grow mushrooms, you can grow anything. No, it's never going to be like that. Well, that's I mean. good to know because I think people, you know, when you think of Tomorrowland and all that kind of stuff, you sort of imagine, at least I do, I imagine like, oh, if they can do it with mushrooms, it'll be, you know, we'll have fraise de bois before you know it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's, you know, what we focus on at Smallhold are crops that have issues with shelf life uh, and that people want fresh. Uh, so we're Is there not, anything that people don't want fresh? Uh, wheat, for example. Okay, Most of the fair time enough. it's dried. Uh, you have flour. Uh, corn, a lot of the time, doesn't really... I mean, sure, fresh is great, but most of the stuff that's... Most of the food we eat is is processed corn. Okay, fair enough. So things that we grow that are predominantly grown to be ingredients and not... Gr grown to be consumed as they as they are yeah like okay. ma massive most of agriculture Legumes. to be completely honest okay. um 
you know, when you get into leafy greens, herbs, mushrooms, uh, there's, there's a bunch of other crops that have issues with shelf life that you can't really freeze. Um, and if you do, the quality is, is, uh, there's, there's issues with it. Um, and so, so that's what most of these local, uh, vertical farm and especially small hold is trying to accomplish. So Angela, certainly farm to table, locavore, seasonality, these are all things that have been a, a part of, you know, the restaurant and menu vernacular for a long time. They started off as things that were trendy and I think now are sort of par for the course if you're a restaurant of any, you know, ba- basically at almost all levels, we now have fast casual chains that are fresh and local and seasonal. How Im- how how important is freshness and the seasonality and, and all those kinds of things for you as a chef? I think, especially living in New York, you think about that a lot. Um, um, what's available at the green market is sparse, I think, compared to other places. I've, I've only been a chef in New York City, and, it, and that's my experience. Um, also cooking um, Asian-American cuisine, where it's very it's it's fusion based. Uh, we get influences from a bunch of different countries. Where um, we're getting things in that's flown in from Asia, from this from Sichuan, the Sichuan province, um, Hokkaido scallops. So we're getting things that we enjoy and things that taste good and cu- are curious about. And so working with someone like Smallhold, um, it's the su- superior product that we can get here and grow it at Mission Chinese that no one else has right now. And so exploring that from that point of view is really exciting and fun. I think that's what I've enjoyed a lot about working with Smallhold specifically is that we explore the varieties that they have specifically and though that variety is quite large in comparison to other mushroom farmers that I've seen um, that are growing mushrooms in, in similar ways. Um, and then that's that's like the exciting part for me to work directly with the people that are innovating these products, uh, working with people that are making herbs in a facility in the basement of in Tribeca, making um, micro herbs or flowers um, and, and asking them how they do it and asking for a specific size. Uh, that type of innovation is really interesting to me because then that uh, spans a spectrum of working directly uh, with these people that are growing specifically for you or um, a farmer that's growing for you seasonal, uh, seasonally who I can ask to make sesame leaves that you can't really get unless you ask somebody to grow them for you specifically. So that range is really nice. Um, and I think that's the, the curious, the, the point of view that I'm coming from as like a curious chef, like who do I want to work with and who wants to work with me and how can we do this? How noticeable for you is the difference in terms of something that you're going to pick out of the, you know, mini farm versus something that you got delivered from a vendor or even from the farmer's market? Is there a noticeable difference in, in the product itself? Yeah, I think the fragrance right away, um, once it's like at least like exploring these like really beautiful, huge, big mushrooms um, that you seek out, uh, noticing the difference of picking it out at the green market or even seeing them at Italy and, and also noticing the price. It's very expensive um, where... Uh, I've had friends that um, maybe picked up a mushroom at uh, the Union Square Green Market and traveled it downtown and already bruises in this different way. And then the fragrance changes, which I enjoy that. Um, I enjoy that how it changes. But for some people, the consistency is something that um, they're really looking for and they need to um, secure. Um, And then 
with mushrooms specifically, they're especially with the product that we're like small holders growing, it's insane. I mean, I wish we could we, we should like talk about the way it looks, but you know, I've also done a bit of like urban foraging and that means like just it, it was mostly like a visual um, ec- exercise for me and a friend. It sounds so cool, urban foraging, and we've done some shows about that. But to be really, really honest, I, I don't know if, if I have the nerve to eat something <laughs> that I foraged somewhere in New York City. Exactly. I mean, I've eaten, I've traveled around the world and I've eaten some wacky food and mm-hmm. some, you know, weird situations and, you know, at the stool and the market in Cambodia and all that yeah. kind of stuff all over. Yeah. I don't know if I could eat something that I foraged in New York City. Right. I would be, I would be it's freaky. afraid, yeah. I think. Yeah, I um because I, the because plants transmit their environment mm-hmm. and most of the New York City environment is pretty aggressive and pretty I mean it goes from like aggressive to nasty mm-hmm. on on a sliding Quickly, scale. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, did you I'm just curious where did you forage <laughs> and did you actually consume anything that you it foraged? Was, it was more more of an exercise cuz I haven't you know, working of looking for things, looking and for identifying. things and identifying, and then finding out where the mushrooms grow. Um, I went with a friend um, who took me to Greenwood Cemetery, and it was more of just we're exploring, we're having an adventurous day. Um, I don't often, as a chef, get to take four days off to go upstate to go mushroom foraging, so it was more of an exercise for me to participate in urban foraging to see, like, to see and then hunt and and like locate an oak tree and see oak leaves from a very far distance, walk up to the oak tree and know that there might be maitake mushrooms because it's it had just rained, it's a, it's a little damp, um, and then feeling in the air um, we're close possibly to mushrooms, but not necessarily for flavor at all. Like we wanted to find mushrooms for the thrill, but for me as a chef, I wasn't super excited about cooking with these mushrooms if we found them, um, but it was more of an opportunity the process, the to process. Learn to identify all the different elements. Yeah, and that wasn't ideal. I'd, ideally, I'd like to forage somewhere like upstate or in Copenhagen with Re- Rene Redzepi or something. But right. or this in was, like the south of France or <laughs> yeah. you know, in Italy on a truffle hunt. Yeah, and then to see, so we found a few um, in in weird condi- in pretty gnarly conditions, and it also just rained. So the mushrooms that we did end up finding were on a sidewalk near a park. Um, outside of the cemetery and they were covered in sand and so we picked them up but and we were really excited but I was not excited to eat them and so I had never seen like you know a 10 pound mushroom in front of me before uh, at that quantity and the next time I did see it was the mushrooms that you were growing Andrew and so uh, that was just access for me as a as a as a city chef as a New York City chef and I put those together as um, you know that like locating this oak tree and seeing these like leaves from far, like that was fun for me. And knowing that, um, that that's how I learned that um, certain mushrooms have to grow off certain types of wood and certain conditions. Um, and that that was also really exciting to me that you guys at Smallhold had so much variety and you put in all the research on collecting different types of wood and different types of substrate like recipes mm. and that you're able to grow out of these little bags and that I could access that. So it's really the next step of, of getting to know your produce. Yeah. Well, the next step of getting to know Tech Bites is listening to who has sponsored the show. Tech Bites and Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. 
we keep the lights on and the mics hot entirely by the goodwill and generosity of our sponsors and members. Find out who sponsored this show. Stay with us. One hundred Bogart Street is finally open and ready for Bushwick. One hundred Bogart is a brand new, state-of-the-art co-working space that provides turnkey workspaces, including open layout desks, meeting spaces, and furnished private offices. Members have access to top-notch amenities such as custom furniture, high-speed internet, spacious kitchenettes with coffee and tea, printers, scanners, and much more. Alongside their professional work environment, 100 Bogart also provides exclusive educational programming for any curious entrepreneur. Heritage Radio Network has made their new office home at 100 Bogart and will host many events there in the future. For more information about their co-working space, visit 100bogart.com and become a member to network, create, and educate. Well, if you're just joining us and you're wondering what the hell you clicked on, this is Tech Bites, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network, where we talk about the intersection of food and technology. And today that intersection is Smallhold, which is a Brooklyn startup. They do mini farms, indoor farming technology. It's pretty interesting. If you want to learn more about Smallhold, you can visit them online at smallhold.com. Follow them on Twitter at Smallhold and on Instagram at smallhold.co. Andrew Carter's joining us. He's one of the C- he is the CEO and one of the co-founders. Also with us today is Angela Dimayuga. She is a chef and a food creative. If you want to follow her on Instagram, she is at swimsuit underscore issue. And she collaborated with Andrew on an indoor mini farm, mushroom farm at Mission Chinese Food, which has two outposts, one in San Francisco, one in New York City. The aforementioned mushroom farm is at Mission Chinese Food, New York City. You can learn more about them at missionchinesefood.com. And if you want to follow them on social media, Mission Chinese Food is the New York City version on Instagram and Mission Chinese F is San Francisco. If you walk into the restaurant in New York, the, they've installed the mushroom farm sort of above the bar. And it's very interesting because the mini farm has these oval-shaped windows that kind of look like portals. It has a sort of metal tone quality to the box itself. And then because it needs special lights to grow the mushrooms, it has this sort of violet kind of light to it. So it And then you have the mushrooms inside, which are very unusual looking things also. So it has a very art installation feeling to it, which really fits the vibe of Mission Chinese food as well. It's a fascinating thing. And so when we were, we had a, the three of us had a conversation before the show and we were talking about how, you know, the restaurant was using a certain number of mushrooms per week. And so they scaled the mini farm to be able to have that yield, which was about 25 to 30 pounds of mushrooms a week that went into various dishes. So Angela, you would just like walk out and pick some mushrooms and go back into the kitchen and then make dinner. Yeah, I think, um, 
you know, that that's the beauty of it. The mushrooms grow at this, uh, they bring the mushroom bags in, in substrate, inoculated, and they have par- they're partially grown. I'm and picturing then, the little, the tiny little baby plants that you can buy at the green market or at the, at the plant shop to start growing. Is that what they look the, like or the, no? They or? don't look like that. The concept is similar, but they come in these, um, these food grade bags. Uh, it's originally with sawdust. We use all waste streams that are in the, in the actual substrate. Uh, and then say we that, in, say that in a, in a slightly less scientific way. Uh, sawdust. <laughs> we use a uh, wheat bran. We have a, a cool relationship with Brownsville roasters using some of their coffee grounds. Um, we've done trials with Brooklyn brewery. All these things are generally thrown away. Um, and we sterilize them and we essentially, uh, bring in the, the mushroom spawn. We, we, we essentially seed it with the mushrooms, uh, off, off away from mission Chinese. Um, and let it sit <clears throat> for a few weeks before it's ready to fruit. Um, as soon as at, at that stage, it's essentially this white bag uh, ready to pop with mushrooms. And so we bring that in, put it in their environment, um, and then within a week, it's ready to harvest. It it happens uh, so quickly you can you can pretty much watch it grow. That's amazing. So yeah. you're sort of composting industrial food waste from other food companies along with some other things as the growing medium for the mushrooms. Essentially, yeah. That's an added bonus. Yeah. I bet I bet people love to hear that <laughs> piece of the story also. Yeah. It's pretty amazing that you can grow all the mushrooms that you need above the bar in the restaurant. It's kind of amazing, but my question to both of you and we we touched on this again in our our conversation that we had before the show, you know, we started off this episode talking about, you know, farm to table and seasonality and going to the green market as a chef. And traditionally, I think up until now, we've heard over and over again, the story of the chef who goes to the green market and is just looking for the the produce and the product that looks just best at that moment and waiting for the vegetables to talk to them. And I'm going to see what looks good and then take that back to the kitchen and make something wonderful with it. This sort of completely obliterates the concept of seasonality because presumably you can have the same mushrooms year round, super fresh and picked, you know, right before you cook with them, which is great, which is a great product. But how do you feel about that, that loss of season or is it better as a chef because then you have consistency all year round? You know, Andrew, you're in the, in the farming business, basically. I mean, seasonality is kind of a big deal yeah i mean it's it's great being a grower and being able to uh extend your season or essentially not not have to worry too much about it um but uh as we kind of spoke about before i i i believe that um diets shift throughout the year um and essentially we're the farmer on the back end we're not mission chinese isn't necessarily just growing completely on their own uh so if if Mission or Angela, whoever's using our systems, wants to change their menu, wants to change the varieties to mimic what's going on outside, we can do that, and we can work with them to do that. Uh, and and we we want to support that as much as possible. But we want to give them the choice. I think that it's it's good for, um, especially when you get into larger restaurants and restaurants that really need consistency throughout the year, um, to give them that ability uh, throughout the winter to have produce that they normally they normally can't get. What, do you think it's important to maintain a seasonal focus as a chef? Do you, or as long as you're getting really freshly grown, amazing product, 
does it not matter if it's growing at a non-seasonally correct moment? Yeah, I think at, at least with Mission, it really works. It worked with us while we've had a huge menu. We're known to have this giant menu that's uh, 40 items. And then um, any day that you walk in, you also get a specials list, which has about 10 items. And those are the dishes that are usually uh, very seasonal. Um, and we will embellish any of the 40 dishes that are on the menu that doesn't change uh, through the year um, with herbs or other embellishments or like fresh corn in a, in a cabbage dish. Uh, through the year, but then it's always nice to have those consistent dishes that my customers know that they can come in and get year round, um, and then look to that specials list of like, okay, what what like icy brothy dish do they have? Um, what what uh, fruit do they have in their shave ice for dessert tonight? Um, and so to have that variety is really fun for me. But then also know that the mushrooms in say our mushroom fried rice, which does require a 25 to 30 pound yield of mushrooms a week are going to be the best mushrooms that I could possibly get. Um, you know, next to that, before, I mean, before that, I would be getting enoki mushrooms, button mushrooms, and beach mushrooms that I could get year round, but they don't nearly taste as good, smell as good, um, or look as good. So to flip that and have these beautiful mushrooms year long there. Um, why not do that? And also it looks great in the restaurant. It's, it's it really does exciting. look great. It's, it's really groovy and cool and fun and food and weird. And Well, mo- most people are going to be getting that produce anyway. You know, it's like you can import this stuff from all over the place. And so in the winter... We, you we can do be- kind of exist in, I mean, the modern contemporary American supermarket and, and most supermarkets in the world are kind of non-seasonal at yeah. this stage. And part of the part of what's happened over the years in terms of mass agriculture is that things have been grown for transportation and for preservation more so than for flavor and deliciousness and seasonality. Exactly. It's that whole, like we eat tomatoes all year round and we're not supposed to thing. I mean, and I think that if the technology is there and the people and the growers are there and the farmers and the people are buying it, then I think that, um, it's, it's great if we can produce it locally. Um, if it's produced year round, um, and we're still, you know, succeeding in selling to that market that would be importing it from Mexico or Canada, then that's great. I mean, cause again, they're going to, they're going to be getting it anyway. Okay. So Andrew, currently the mini farm technology has basically greens, mushrooms, and herbs. On the green side, you're doing like butterhead lettuce and arugula, watercress. You have a bunch of different mushrooms, king oyster, mitake, shitake. You have some different basils. Are you expanding the offering soon into different categories? Is this what was most in demand? Is that what the chefs really, really love? Yeah, so we're actually focusing mainly on mushrooms right now. So we have the ability of doing the leafy greens and herbs, but... Um, there's a lot of demand with the mushrooms themselves and, um, really, we're really expanding on those varieties. Um, again, like if you've noticed a lot of these vertical farms that are coming out, most of them focus on the head lettuce and leafy green offerings. Um, I think that's great, but I think that there needs to be other types of produce that, that come out of these things. Um, Especially because lettuce is not really nutritive. I mean, it doesn't have that many, I, I don't know that that's even actually a word, but lettuce does not have a huge amount of nutrition in it and in terms of volume and, you know, being satiated when you eat. So it looks great and it's nice and people love to have it and fresh lettuce is amazing. But in terms of making 
inroads into, you know, functional food in terms of populations and feeding people. Yeah, I mean, stepping off, moving, you know, moving towards things that are a little more robust. Yeah, and that's good. that's one of the the benefits of growing mushrooms, and I think that there's a um, an increasing interest in 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 a lot of mushrooms at this point. There's people that are uh, eating less meat. There's people that are being being really careful about their diets, and so mushrooms are a, a pretty uh, you know it makes sense that people are stepping to that and increasing their eating that and putting that in their diet. Um, I think again, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we we really focus on crops that have issues with shelf life, that have issues with transportation, um, and so uh, we're we're kind of sticking with these these herbs and leafy greens and mushrooms. Um, I think that again, we're not going to be growing corn in one of these things. Um, but you say that now. Yeah, who knows? I mean, who knows say what the future now. holds? You never know. Um, but the biggest thing that we're really figuring out is how to make meaningful amounts of produce out of these systems. Um, you know, thirty pounds of mushrooms a week coming out of a small area above the bar at Mission Chinese is pretty cool. Uh, it's not just some sort of uh, nice little thing that they have uh, just sitting there. This is actually impacting their menu and impacting their buying patterns. Well, and 30 pounds a week times 52 weeks, you know, that starts to add up. Yeah. And yeah. mushrooms are actually an expensive ingredient. Yes. Especially when you get into the fancy, the fancy types exactly. which you're growing. Those are, mushrooms can be... $20 a pound, $30 yep. a pound. Yeah. And by doing it this way, we can charge a lot less and it can be as high quality as possible. Um, we're certified organic, which we're pretty excited about. Um, and so we bring that to the table as well to these customers because they care about that. So just in round numbers, just to get a sense of it, what do these types of mini farm installations cost? Uh, it kind of depends on the project, but um, it starts around $2,000. Uh, that's pretty much the cost of installing the system. Uh, it's pretty much all everything that's included. Um, we just try to get it in the door um, you know, as easy as possible. And then they pay price per pound of the produce coming out of it. Um, and that price point comes out to be around 8 to $10 a pound, um, again, depending on the variety. Okay. So the one-time expenditure on setting up the facility and then a price per pound of what's coming out of it. Yeah. Sort of in perpetuity because you're bringing the sort of little yeah, we're the, we're plastic the, bags of germinated we're mushrooms. The, we're the farmer in the in the background. And so there's a, a bigger part of it is we have a, a sensor suite and remote management system. Um, it's essentially a bunch of, uh, uh, it's a climate control and lighting and temperature and all that's, that's necessary to grow these uh, really efficiently. Um, so you're monitoring that from your home base, yes, farm Bishop. base. Yeah, yeah, and we control. and we can we can update the parameters from far. So we can push, uh, we can push new climate recipes. We can alter how how it exhausts, how it does all of those things. Again, like most people running a business, don't have time to even worry about that. Sometimes they're curious, like like Angela, and we're totally excited about educating. But for the most part, we just we just want it to work. Um, and, and grow a lot of really high quality produce. So with the um, monitoring and the updating and the bringing in the new product to grow, to f finish growing, what's the scalability potential on this? Yeah. Because that's mean, always the thing. That Everyone is the can thing. make something that works great for a couple of places and grow mushrooms for one restaurant, and that's awesome. But yeah. scalability is the thing that people are interested in. Yes. Um, it's. We we believe, uh, and we're kind of proving it now, is that it's it's a really scalable way of doing local farming uh, and just any sort of uh, urban food distribution. So what what each 
installation is, is essentially part of our footprint. Um, once we have thousands of these things out there, we can represent a really large farm without actually owning a whole lot of square footage. Um, so, we're so they're like satellites of your of the small hold farm. Yes. Small hold is like the mother farm, and then the little farms are like the baby satellites. Pretty much. Okay. Uh, so there's a lot of efficiencies in large scale farming. Uh, doing the work to get the um, the the sawdust to the point where it's ready to fruit uh, that doesn't really make sense on a small scale. Uh, so once you have a really large footprint and a large farm that you're representing, that's when you can get that price down, uh, and that's why it makes so much sense to distribute this way. So what size are we talking about in terms of scalability when you cross into the efficiencies? Um, I mean, we can definitely, uh, you know, grow grow for for many many different restaurants and retailers here in New York. Uh, we're looking at options in other cities as well, um, starting on the East Coast. But uh, there's there's a lot of interest uh, on the West Coast as well as in the Midwest. So we have that that ability uh, to essentially scale our farm footprint really quickly, a lot faster than. A traditional farm or even a vertical farm that's really focused on one plot or one warehouse. Interesting. So we'll see. I mean, it's a, it's a hot topic right now. It's an important topic, a more efficient, effective food system to feed more people, more nutritious and better food. That seems to be one of the hot topics around the world, actually, at many of the food conferences and conventions and, and things like that. So definitely something to keep watching. Angela, it's so interesting um, that you sort of have the opportunity to have a conversation that you don't usually have as a chef. You know, as we said before, usually you go to the market, you see what smiles at you, what you like, what's fresh. And now you're able to have input into what's being grown for you, which is, I mean, is that just a, a limitless potential for you? Yeah, I think that that's why I was initially interested in working with them because um the product that I saw they were they were growing already was uh, the variety was really impressive right away. And I'd seen people um, make uh, or grow mushrooms out of bags hanging uh, with uh, spent coffee grounds um, and been interested in just oyster mushrooms because that that was that's like one of the easiest ones to grow. I hear I, I don't grow them myself, but I hear that that's like a great starter mushroom. Um, and then seeing the varieties that Smallholt had. That got me really excited because I had never seen a piapino mushroom growing, and they look um, incredible. And so to see that for the first time through them was really exciting to me that we could kind of um, really explore so many different types. And then it eventually turned into them showing me that they've also developed their recipe to make pink oyster mushrooms, which I've seen in cellophane bags in Japan or at Italy and been attracted to them, but there's nothing more exciting than just seeing a big chunk of these bright pink mushrooms in front of you and know that they're grown for you and they're mine and then I could do anything with them and and the way that they taste is so incredible that sometimes even making dishes with the mushrooms I feel a little like I'm not doing justice to just the pure flavor of it because it doesn't need much my preferred way of having these mushrooms are just simply grilled and have a little bit of olive oil it doesn't even really need salt or just sauteing them um, in a little bit of butter, like maybe an exciting type of butter, but it doesn't need much. And messing with them too much, sometimes I feel bad just like breaking them down because they're just really visual and really gorgeous and they taste incredible. I've often heard chefs talking amongst themselves about how delicious a 
it is when you do get amazing product, and like you say, and you've described just cooking it extremely simply with maybe a little salt or olive oil or butter, and how they would love to put those kinds of things onto their menus, but they feel like the public always wants something a little more manipulated or more cooking or more spectacular and that you almost couldn't get away with something that was right. so simple, even though many times that really simple thing is really the best thing. Right. So we are out of time. I keep asking for more time in a longer show. <laughs> <laughs> because we could talk about this for at least another hour. We could take a pizza break and come back. But we're out of time. So I'm going to ask both my guests for a little piece of advice for our listeners, like we do at the end of every show. We've talked so much about seasonality and farming and going to the farmer's market. And both of you have experience from sort of different sides of the coin, Angela as a chef and Andrew as a farmer. To the both of you, the same question. How do you get the most out of the farmer's market? How do you have the best farmer's market experience? Sometimes it's a little daunting. You go, it's crowded. You have your little tote bag. There's a lot to choose from. There's stuff maybe you haven't seen before. It seems kind of expensive sometimes. Angela, what's your best advice to people who want to go and have a good experience at the farmer's market? I think you go um, with a couple ideas in mind, but put them in categories. So say you're looking for honeycomb and you're like, I really want honeycomb from this cheese for this cheese plate, but put it in a category of some type of sweet, like an interesting sweet, or I need a really fragrant herb or I need this specific type of flower with this color as a garnish, put them in different categories and know that you could sort of play in the category. So if they don't have honeycomb, maybe there's a person that makes what they, this is, this is something that happened to me, maple crystals. I'm like, I don't even know what that is, but it could be used in the same way as a sweet on a cheese board. Or if you had this idea to have this perfect like edible rose as a garnish, they might have these really beautiful mini orangey pink ones that you've never seen before and feel like you can have fun in that creative work of uh, exploring within these categories and then then you find these products that you've you never even thought of that's very good because nature and nature can be fickle and you might not always find what you need <laughs> if you don't have the small hold farm over, <laughs> over your bar Andrew same question how do you get the most out of a farmer's market yeah I got a few um, uh, go early uh, as early as possible, uh, you can you can probably go before work and then be home, deliver your food, and then go to go to work. It's open that early. Um, there's less people. There's usually better quality produce because it's just off the truck. Um, and the chefs go really early and, and buy there. everything first. And you can see you can see that interaction, which is always wild, like seeing people buy lots of produce and running around with their notebook and stuff. Um, the other one, uh, walk through the whole thing first before you buy. Um, see what's there, just sort of peep, peep the scene, see all the farmers, and then uh, sort of collect yourself and then go back around and start start doing your shopping. And that took me a little while to figure out. Um, and then definitely just talk to people. Uh, sometimes, you know, it depends on the farmer, but some people just kind of like to chat and talk about, like, what, what they're growing. And then you have a little more attachment to the food, um, which changes the flavor. I mean, obviously, you want to know um, how people are growing, but just... I, that that experience it's like hunting your mushroom in 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 the in the um in the graveyard or uh, even growing in small hold it's like adding that experience really changes your your how you how you taste and how you uh experience that food 
two different but very good points of view and, and good piece of, pieces of advice. I bet if you put the two of them together, it would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank Andrew Carter from Small Hold and Angela Dimiuga, who is a chef, for coming on to the show today to talk about their collaboration with the Mini Mushroom Farm at Mission Chinese Food downtown in New York City. It was great to have you on the show. For those listening at home, if you want to listen to this show over and over again, you can do that at heritageradionetwork.org. You can also subscribe to it at Stitcher Radio, iTunes, and Simplecast, and most of your favorite podcasting platforms. Tech Bytes happens every Thursday at 11 a.m. It is hosted and produced by Jennifer Leutzi. We want to thank Uptown Nico, the DJ who made our amazing theme song, Nomada CPU Track. If you like the show, come back and see us again. If you love it, go to heritageradionetwork.org, click the beating heart, and throw us maybe what you spent at the green market this week. It'll help us keep the lights on and the mics hot. I'm Jennifer Leitzi. This is Tech Bytes. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.